Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. The way I look at this is I don't see travel and tourism having any issue with demand. <laughs> demand is going to be a constant and it's going to be growing. So we're in an industry that gets growth by default because of global population changes and economic changes. So demand is baked into the system at X percent growth per year. Uh, it's how about how do we manage that growth? Now, as tour operators, particularly ones who are operating in places who are under the stress of over demand, we actually can make a big impact because we can change the experiences. We design the experiences on the ground and then retail them in many ways to the consumer. But often the consumer will buy what you put in front of them if it's put in the right content, in the right context, again, with the right exp explanation. So tour operators are actually right at the forefront of this, of being able to redesign experiences that will make the visitor's experience different and hopefully better, and also make the residents and the people who live there experience different. Good day, tourpreneurs, and today I would like to welcome Tony Carney. Tony is broadcasting from down south in Melbourne, Australia. So great to have someone from Australia where it's winter there. I'm in sunny Scotland, but apparently Tony has a temperature that's higher than my summer in Scotland at the moment. So welcome to Tourpreneur, Tony. Tony has a background in travel that goes back over 20 years. He's currently the Chief Operating Officer of Air Guides. He's a columnist for Skift, that big publication in transfer and travel. So he's writing for that. He was an entrepreneur in residence at Antler. He's an advisor to the industry. He co-founded an Egyptian food shop at some point. I think that's correct. There must be a story behind, There's a story be a story behind an Egyptian street food shop somewhere. And then a big one, I think he spent 17 or 18 years at Intrepid Travel, which is the biggest tour operator in the world, if I remember the numbers correctly, where he ended up as managing director as Urban Adventures. Have I got all that sort of correct? Pretty good. I'm, I'm glad there was some tourism in there at the end. Yeah, yes, yeah, so that, that little bit of 17 years at Intre <laughs> Intrepid, uh, I just dropped Try and get a little bit of relevance in, uh, yeah. no, uh, and, and can talk falafel for hours, should anyone require it. Falafel for hours, talking mm. or eating falafel for hours? Bit of both, bit of both, bit yes. Of both. Uh, just definitely go the Egyptian style, fava bean is the way. Cool. So the reason we've got Tony in today is to just a discussion about the changing face of tourism from what he's seeing from down under, what I'm seeing from up here. And we've obviously been through a pandemic. We've all had huge changes in our industry. 
but we're all coming out of that now. We're all looking at the future, but things are not the same. Things are probably never going to be back to the same. Uh, obviously, we don't want another pandemic. It's always a possibility. We don't want another one, but things are changing. We can feel it in our gut. We can sense it. Things are happening. Things are changing. So we're just going to have a chat about some of the changes, particularly that's impacting tour operators. I'm just Hello to Peter's dog. Yeah, that's my dog. So I'm just going to kill the dog. <laughs> so this is the dog that was just interrupting our podcast. He's blind, so he's not looking at you. He's 100% blind. And he's called Guinness because of a, a little drink Beautiful. that I like drinking. What a dog. That, that's that's Tony you. from Australia, dog. Good on you, little mate. Yeah. He's now thrown in bed. So let's start off with what I see is the biggest challenge in tourism and travel going forward, Tony. Environmental impact and sustainability. It's something I am not an expert on at all, but I can feel the change. I can feel it. I can see it happening. I have concerns that the industry is not going to react to it well. And I think the governments of the world will start regulating the hell out of tourism going forward because the industry is not getting its act together and doing things proactively rather than just waiting. And I, and I know reasons for this. We're coming out of a pandemic where balance sheets are bust. People have heard me say before, there's a dash for cash and operators are desperate to get cash in, just get back to what 2019 was. And we see it in the media all the time, trying to get 2019 numbers, trying to get 2019 numbers. It's basically get cash in at all costs. Uh, whereas during the pandemic, we were all talking about doing things differently. So big subject. But for me, going forward, if we take a 10-year view, 15-year view, 20-year view, this is probably the overriding subject that's going to come up time and time again, not just from the industry, not just from regulators onto the industry, but eventually the consumers. I'm not saying the consumers are leading it at the moment. I don't think they are. But eventually the consumer pressure will be there as well. So what? What? let's start with the good stuff. What do you see good from the tourism industry with regards to environmental stuff and sustainability because there is good stuff there is good stories totally totally and look and as you say look it's a, a massive issue and a complex issue and, and i also i'm not an expert uh on it but um uh, it's it's something that's kind of uh been part of my personal dna and um and it was obviously a big part of internally at intrepid um who you know pioneered um responsible tourism you know, it was ecotourism uh, whatever you you want to term it back in the day so it's kind of always been with me and um look yeah, the, the good stuff um is, is a great place to start and uh, this audience um you know the the small tour operator they're at the good end of it you know they are in general um uh, you know working locally employing locally um keeping money in in communities um and in touch with uh the communities around them and so you know, they've got a really good feel for what the local vibe is around um tourism's impact in a community now that's not necessarily on the environmental side um there's a inevitable conundrum between travel and um, carbon emission um, if we want to get people from 
a long way away to where we are. Um, there is an inevitable cost in terms of carbon emission for that. Now, will you know, us as a uh, human race um, inevitably say that that's something that we're willing to accept because the benefits of travel um, for us personally, you know, with our personal growth and for our economies is worth it. You know, I think inevitably that, that will bear out. But, you know, there is a small risk, um, and you say it's not consumer-led at the moment, but, you know, particularly I think the younger uh, demographic are highly focused on this issue and um, will be thinking about travelling way different to perhaps, um, you know, their, definitely their parents did and, and even the generation you know, that, are, that are mass travellers now will be travelling probably in a different way to, to what we've seen in the past and that will be what, what this change is that comes out of, um, uh, out of the period that we're coming out of now. But other, other good stuff, look, we've seen, you know, a declaration to Glasgow um, uh, where tourism, um, you know, basically signed a declaration um, declaring a, a climate emergency um, that was, you know, led by the tour operator um, side of, uh, of the travel industry. Um, you know, big kudos to, you know, Alex Narricot from um, uh, Much Better Adventures, who, who was, you know, kind of the, the driving force behind that and all the, you know, uh, initial signatories of that and, and the ongoing work of people to um, not only sign up to the pledge, but also to, you know, write down their plans. Um, and I encourage people to go and have a look, you know, just Google um, tourism signs a, a declaration um, uh, towards a, a climate emergency and you'll get the site there and you can look through the, the plans that some of the bigger companies have put in place um, to mitigate their own uh, emission output. And maybe there's something from that that even you know at the micro level, um, companies could look at to, and learn from uh, in their own operations, and um, and you know take those first steps in in, in minimising the impact that they are having. Uh, when I think back to my own operations, I have to put my hands up here. And 20 odd years we operate in our environmental and sustainability projects weren't in the top five or the top ten things that we did. Uh, they, they just weren't, and I, I have to put my hands up for that. Having said that, we were in adventure travel, therefore, by default, a lot of the stuff that we were doing was pretty good anyway. Like we were leaving a lot more money in destination than, than other types of tourism. But when I when I eventually got round to writing uh, policies for the business, being Scottish, who we have a tendency to look after the pennies and the pounds, I always started with economic <laughs> pros and cons initially b before looking at the environmental and social issues. I always started with economic issues. Now, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I just think it's when we're communicating to tourism paid professionals and tour operators coming out of a very difficult, probably hopefully the most difficult time in their lives from a, running a business, because I really hope it doesn't get this difficult again. I think if we start with the economic issues around the opportunities we have more chance of moving the industry if we focus on the economic things first rather than the, the necessarily the social or the environmental and, and the reason i say that is because a lot of the economic stuff can be really simple <laughs> do you invest where your business operates or do you have a structure where a lot of the cash you're generating goes elsewhere and we all know cases in tourism 
where it's obvious the money that is generated is recycled into the system. And we all know cases where the money is generated is extracted for the system. So it's a very simple question. Do you invest in the area, in the community you're in? Do you contribute in that area to the resources that the, that you're using? So the simple thing we used to do, we used the river a lot. Hmm. That's simple. We were taking people down rivers. Therefore, we had a responsibility to keep that river clean. Every year we'd send kind of teams down to clean, get all the guns out, get all the stuff that rivers just attract out there. So it's if you're using a resource, have you got a policy to, to keep that resource, whatever it is, it doesn't necessarily need to be a natural resource, uh, but have you got a policy to maintain that resource for, for everyone, not just for your use, but the uh, the use of everyone? Hiring staff, one of the biggest issues we have in tourism at the moment is hiring staff. Obviously, if you hire local versus hiring international, you have a bigger a bigger impact in the local, the local environment. I've got to say, I was guilty of hiring international a lot rather than hiring local. Just the type of tours we wanted, we wanted a wider range of expertise and knowledge and accents and people from around the world. But in today's world, there should be a higher focus in and and uh, hiring locally, and your supply chain. Again, we all, even as small operators, we have supply chains. We we have ecosystems that we all discovered how critical they were to us when they all collapsed during COVID. Your bus companies, your restaurants, and your accommodation suppliers, your your extra guys that you need. This whole e food supplier whole ecosystem is absolutely critical. To the economic infrastructure of tourism, and when you when you map that and lay that out, you can you can come up with economic benefits for one your business, but two for the wherever you are in the world and wherever that that area is, and that's only a small list. And I'm sure that list could be expand expanded a lot. But it's maybe just the way my brain works. It's like if you if you really can see the economic benefits of doing it, that gives you the freedom to move on to some of the other stuff, which is where you're going to be investing in the environmental side and the social side of it because your economic model is telling you it's not just the right thing to do, but it's the economic right thing to do. And I think think that's exactly what's going to happen, Pete, 100% bang on. And, and um, you know, any small business owner is going to concentrate on the economics because, um, you know, these are not big businesses. They have troughs um, and peaks. Um, as we all know, you know, there's high seasons, there's low seasons. You know, you, you try to make your money in the high season to get you through the slow season. Um, you know, so you, you can't really be turning off um, the tap when you are living that life you know, and your business is living that life. It, it, you need to have um, an economic mindset that makes sense for the business to survive. But I think um, what we'll find is, you know, again, this sector of the industry is already in a really good spot, whether they've um, meant to be or not, in that a lot of the things that I think consumers are going to demand in the future are already being done by um, the way the majority of this sector already operates. Um, and it is, even if you can't do everything 100% um, to the perfection that you would like to do it immediately, you know, do concentrate on the things that you are innately and always have done well, which could be that local hiring, which could be 
um, the, the utilising of, of local suppliers and ensuring that you know money's going back into the community where you live. Um, and, and I think that's probably going to be, well, I, I don't know whether I think it or I hope it, but probably a little bit of both, um, is that, you know, tourism from a government level will um, inevitably switch to having deeper conversations with the communities where tourism exists um, out of necessity um, and uh, and the communities themselves will start to define um, the type of tourism that they want to have in their particular area. Now, if you're a resident and you're a part of that community and you engage with that community and you listen to them, um, then you'll always be a step ahead and you'll always be in the right spot to deliver not only the type of tourism that your customer um, is hoping to receive, but also a type of tourism that your community is willing to offer, you know. And so I guess, you know, old school hospitality is, you know, um, we uh, receive guests from other places and we host them. Um, and ultimately for the best experience, we need the vibe around them from the rest of the community to also be welcoming. And, you know, I think that's going to be, yeah, pretty much the main thing is working in with your local community. Uh, I think everybody will kind of be able to understand the, you know, the downside of of travel from a carbon perspective in flying. But you know, where you can really lean into is you know making sure that what you're doing is in line with your local community expectations, um, and that you're a good citizen. You know, that you're a good citizen within your own community, and I think that will hold you in really good step. And you know, all this stuff is around sustainability you know that, that's all part of it if you're working in with what the community expects then you will inevitably um be doing uh doing that in a sustainable way whether you've got it written down as a policy or not yeah i've, I've kind of got a live example of what you just discussed there in in scotland uh, and it's sorry framing for what i see happening around the world and coming so like many cities <coughs> Excuse me, like many cities around the world, Edinburgh is a very tourism-focused city. It had an absolute boom pre-pandemic. Airbnb came in as a model. A lot of people started doing Airbnb in Edinburgh, and then a lot of people started investing in Airbnb, and we ended up with a mass, particularly centered in the center of Edinburgh, of Airbnb ownership. Uh, the industry from the hoteliers weren't happy, but they didn't really have an impact on government. They whinged a lot and they complained a lot, but that wasn't that wasn't what got government to get involved. What got government involved was local residents and local residents complaining about the amount uh, because the tenement blocks and flat blocks that ended up being five residents and 25 Airbnbs. Uh, and it just changed. I'm just going to grab my dog again. It just changed. Uh, Absolutely, just changed the the makeup of people's lives in the in the city centre and the the the, the, the vibe. Yeah, it, it just it just changed people. The tourism industry did we really pay? Or the hospitality industry did we really pay attention? Did we listen? No, we didn't, uh, or we pretended to because we didn't take any action, and it just kept churning on, churning on, and churning on. So the government took action, and now if you want to, as of this week. If you want to run an Airbnb in Edinburgh within the, the city boundary, you have to change your property from a private residence to a commercial residence. And that is a big change. It's very difficult yeah. to do. It's expensive to do. 
it affects the sale price when you you sell it and and in reality it's just killed the airbnb market because not many people will change their property from residential to commercial uh, even if they want to the chances are it will not go through because when they put the application in all the other residents will say no we don't want a commercial property in the apartment next next door to us it had a bigger kick-on effect than that because the government and the governments are not great at getting into the detail went oh we could license all self-catering in the whole of scotland so because of one issue in a very small five to six mile radius in edinburgh they've gone way over to regulation in edinburgh for the rest of scotland they've gone to a licensing scheme that isn't changing the property could have made too commercial like in edinburgh but every single self-catering accommodation in scotland now needs to be licensed that comes with a cost comes with inspections comes with a lot of stuff that small hospitality owners are not used to doing or, or, or willing to do. And what we are going to see is a quite a steep reduction of people coming out of the industry, particularly the people who are near retirement age, which makes up a lot of them. They'll just go, it's not worth it anymore. So that example is a, is a case of the noise was there, the message was there, tourism listened but didn't act, and then heavy regulation came in and does what heavy regulation does in a blunt and taking a, a sledgehammer to a problem that, that could have been solved with with something dialogue and discussion could have been solved but they've took a sledgehammer to it uh, and it's going to change the end the tourism industry in scotland that yeah. is happening around the world it's, i know similar things are happening in barcelona and in paris we have buses being removed of the streets so city after city is looking at changing the way they operates their city with a focus on the people who live there rather than a focus on the tourists. It's it's a really tough one, Pete. And um, yeah, we all all reflect on 2019 because it was actually, you know, it was such a boom year. 2018, 2019, like basically everything kicked in and worked brilliantly in terms of getting mass tourists to wherever they needed to be. Um, so, you know, financially lucrative for, I'm sure, a, a lot of the um, listeners on Entrepreneur, you know, probably two of the better years that they've, they've ever had. Um, yet if they, uh, if any of them, uh, the people listening, you know, managed to get out and go, you know, visit different places, um, it was pretty crappy out there. It was like just so hideously busy um, that the enjoyment factor of where you were was incredibly diminished. Um, if I was in in Greece at some point during that that time, and um, you know, never seen it so overrun. You, you're literally standing in a very slow moving queue through, albeit a very lovely um, uh, scenic area, um, just bumping along, you know, behind hundreds and hundreds of other people. And um, you know, I, I don't know that anybody could be have been enjoying that experience um, uh, and inevitably you know poor experiences also take their toll so um, it, it's a definitely a difficult one difficult one to balance um, the money of 2019 um, great um, whether we you know really truly as a species want to go back to that level or aspire to that um, again, um, you know, I don't think the, the residents of Barcelona or Amsterdam or, or Venice are probably that keen um to to get back to those to those levels and you know i think as you said a lot of those places have taken action uh, in in the time since to 
um, put as many blockers as they can to ensure that doesn't happen again. So, the, and these are the things that you know all areas will come up against as they become um, super popular, um, yeah, as yeah. you know the middle classes of of, of other nations start travelling on mass. Yeah, which was kind of the real spur of eighteen nineteen to have, you know, the the Chinese tourists and the and the Indian tourists and a lot of other, you know, kind of emerging economy tourists were, you know, they were out there. It was huge, um, and added that on to the the already um, existing population of of what we had. And in some places, it was too much. Uh, yeah. I think we need to put our hands up and say that's true. Yeah, I think it's tour operators, and I totally get it. I was always the same as a, an operator. I was laser focused on execution day by day, week by week, and month by month, everything measured to the, the utmost. But sometimes when we look out and we look to the future, and today if the pandemic was a, a window of something that happened. Obviously, we hope it doesn't happen again. But if we ignore what happened in the, the pandemic and look at the big demographics and the big trends, well, there's going to be another X billion people coming into middle class, as you say, what happens when people move into middle class and middle class earning is they start traveling. That That is a fact. It's happened time and time again. Uh, they start traveling within their own country first, then they start traveling rigidly, and then they start traveling long haul internationally. So I, the way I look at this is I don't see travel and tourism having any issue with demand. <laughs> demand is going to be a constant and it's going to be growing. So we're in an industry that gets growth by default because of global population changes and economic changes. So demand is baked into the system at X percent growth per year. Uh, it's how about how do we manage that growth? Now, as tour operators, particularly ones who are operating in places who are under the stress of over demand, we actually can make a big impact because we can change the experiences. We design the experiences on the ground and then retail them in many ways to the consumer but often the consumer will buy what you put in front of them if it's put in the right content in the right context again with the right exp explanation so tour operators are actually right at the forefront of this of being able to redesign experiences that will make the visitors experience different and hopefully better and also make the residents and the people who live there experience different yeah, and what you've explained there, Pete, was basically exactly the Urban Adventures operating model for yeah. 10 years. Like our starting point was what already exists, don't do that. You know, find that your city is a, an amazing place filled with incredible people, awesome stories. Somewhere in there is the best of something. Go and find those best ofs that are not in the city centre, are not near the main uh, attraction. Um, that have an uh, enigmatic owner that you know is wants to tell their story and and um, and be effusive and 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 show that hospitality you know um, um, to to guests that have come from afar and want to experience um, what they've created uh, and that was kind of exactly the entire ethos and mentality of of the um, of the production of tours at, at Urban Adventures um, yeah and there's a that's a that's a risk. To take because it's certainly much simpler to try and take a portion of a market that you can see is flooded because there are literally you know thousands of people swarming the the core um, sites of the city versus saying I don't want to be, 
I don't want to do that. I want to um, be about dispersal. I want to be about um, helping tourism have a wider reach. And it takes longer to build those products into um, popularity. But I mean, along along the way, um, you know, I can think that you know our you know our Tokyo food tour didn't go anywhere touristy. It went somewhere very untouristy, um, and and was one of the um, you know, regarded as one of the best food tours in the world by our friends at, at TripAdvisor. Um, same with our, you know, our Prague beer tour, not in the city centre, out in the burbs, uh, you know, a place the tourists don't really go. But guess what? They've got bloody great beer out there. Um, you know, so three times best beer tour in the world, um, you know, Hall of Fame, etc. cetera. Um, it can be done and you've got great stuff in your city that, that I'm sure you know about or wherever you happen to operate, if you're not in a city, wherever you are, there's always great stuff that you can demonstrate that isn't what everyone else is doing. Um, and I think that that's what people are going to start looking for because they want to be, A, experience the best, but also not be in places where they're harried and, and that are just overrun and busy. You're on your vacation. You want to be in a spot that's relaxing and calming um, and uh, and but still got great experiences that you can share when you get home, and that's you know that, that's kind of the, the point of it. Yeah, the, the, there is an economic model behind that as well. It's if we if we look at if we jump onto a retail site, buy it or TripAdvisor, whatever, and you look at any city and you look at all the regular tours that do take volume. There's no getting away from that. They do take volume. People make money out of them. But for many listeners here, entrepreneurs they're not going to be able to build a scale business. That's just the hard fact of it. And if you go after the really popular tours, you have to build a scale business. And yeah. and the tour itself, recently we had Joe Pine on here from the experience economy. What happens to the experience itself? It becomes a commodity. And then it becomes a competition. And then it becomes price pressure. So your price is under pressure all the time. Therefore, the only way you're addressing that is by scaling up, getting more customers. Whereas if you create unique tours, yes, they're not going to be as popular, but you have control of your price. You have control of your margin and you can make significantly more margin with less customers rather than dealing with a lot more customers. There's always going to be someone who has the ability and the scale to deal with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers, in some case, millions of customers a year. But for most listeners to tourpreneur, it's finding these experiences, designing these experiences that are going to be true experiences, verging on transformational experiences that can be priced at a point that the customer is willing to pay for that great experience. And it's at a point where the operator makes a living profit to allow them to reinvest in their local community, allow them to reinvest in their business and put food on the table. Sure. Yeah, and look, and just another, I guess, part of that is you know once a tour becomes a commodity, um, tour guides are human people, and you know, in general, like some of the best yeah. people I've ever met, um, and super creative people, and um, uh, and love expressing their passion for their city. But you know, uh, day fifteen of doing the same thing on a commodity tour. Is really hard to express to the guests that are there, and this is their big day, experiencing whatever it happens to be, with the same amount of passion as you did on day one, because like, it, it does become a uh, monotonous yawn. Um, and you know, everyone now is experiencing pressures in employing um, 
all sorts of roles, but you know, tour guides in particular. I see lots of companies out there, you know, desperately looking for for people to to guide their tours. Um, and you might get them on for a little while to do those commodity type tours, but in the end, they're going to get bored, and that's not going to be a good experience for your customer either. You know, so there's a whole cycle here um, um, that that that's in play. You know, um, and yeah, for us, it was always you know the guide basically is the experience. Uh, we used to give people a, fr a framework that they used to have to operate under, but we didn't do scripts or anything like that. It's like, you know, you are a, a citizen of this city. You've got your own stories to relate about where we are right now. That's the stories that you should be telling because they'll, they're the ones that you'll tell with passion and authenticity. And, you know, the fact that you know um, this vendor or that vendor or wherever you happen to be going is all part of the experience, you know, the chemistry that you exude um, with those people is, is what your customers feed on. Um, and they feel that authenticity and, and that's when they feel they've really got something special um, in return. So moving on, Tony, obviously a huge part of your background career was working for Intrepid and Urban Venture, kind of Intrepid, largest tour operator in the world. So just some points from you for, for our listeners about lessons that you can bring from the big world of tour operating, kind of scaled operation uh, as Intrepid was operating in God knows how many countries around the world to what lessons did you learn in there that you then applied when you were running your your falafel shop for example in your your small tour tour business <laughs> yeah for sure look um uh it, of course intrepid's a, a big operation and you know um, um and scaling something is not easy um so like the uh the process to get there um is not easy and um yeah, the problems that the small operator has is just magnified within a larger operation. Like there's no secret sauce. Um, there might be a lot of the old duck on top of the water looking calm and serene, but you know, even when you get to scale, um, doesn't mean every one of your systems has scaled alongside you. And so there's a lot of kind of you know backwards and forwards and, and manual work going on to make all that operation you know uh, run smoothly. Um, I happened to run into one of the old Intrepid guys just on the weekend um, and I just had a quick chat about, you know, kind of what's going on now. And he said, you know, uh, and, and this is a person that's extremely high up, not at an operational kind of level. And I was asking, you know, kind of what's going on there. And he's, he's talking to me about, you know, a, you know, a guide in remote northwest uh, Australia, which is a fairly remote part of the world, um, getting COVID. And that's okay, but they got the other. They had a, a guide not too far away that they get to take over the group, and he got COVID, and so that's it. We're out. You know, I've got a group of twelve people in a very remote part of Australia with two guides in isolation that can't be with the group. You know, and these are the these are the problems that it doesn't matter how what size of your business is, like you still need to fix that problem. Yeah. Um, so look, it, it, it's. As, thing, as things get bigger, you do work out ways to um, to create. Creating, I think, at scale it isn't so difficult. Operating at scale um, is is just infinite more issues. You know that you, you you build a process, you build a system around them that can cope with most things, um, but it involves a lot more people. You know, so I think when when I started Intrepid, if there was you know, 300 people there, I would have been surprised. By the time I left, there was two and a half thousand people. And yeah, so 
th- these are things that happen as as things get bigger quite inevitably. And um, you know, those are you know, those listening to this um, um, podcast are managing people. And so you know, managing ten people is hard. You know, managing two and a half thousand people is a lot harder. You know, yeah. so. Um, I guess you know. Be careful what you wish for. I guess would be would be one way to look at it. Um, um, but in terms, I guess practical advice. You know, running 165 um, day tour cities across the world. Like, how do you standardise that and 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 make it so that uh, you know a unified brand and all those kind of things. All those things were difficult as well. And you know, particularly you know, urban adventures won't run on you know almost a co-op basis. Um, so it actually took people's individual buy-in to the process to to make those things occur on the ground, you know, in a systematic way. Um, and like anything in this world, um, you know, dictating from above is um, you're always going to probably end up in tears. Um, and so, you know, if you've got people around you um, uh, that you've brought into the tent, then you need to bring them into the conversation and, and build your um, processes up from the collective experience of everybody. So I guess, you know, from an Urban Adventures point of view, um, we had a product formula, but it was very, um, uh, it was a very high level. Um, so we used a formula that was called flavour and those were the elements that we needed to see in every single tour. But how you interpreted those locally was up to you. And then how your guide on the ground then interpreted that in their own tour, as I said, it was more or less left up to higher well get the right people out there and encourage them to tell the own, their own stories to build authenticity into the end product. Um, and so that's a system. That's a system that we used. Um, and it meant if you went on a trip in Prague and then you went on a trip in Cairo, um, they might not be exactly the same trip, but they were probably recognisable as Urban Adventures trips because of the authenticity of the guide um, and the places that you went were off the beaten track and you went and visited a lot of the best of um, uh, of things that are in that city that are not the main attractions. And so those were the kind of overarching themes that allowed us to scale um, and have some uniformity, but without it being, you know, overly onerous on anyone within the chain. Yeah. From a, from a background experience of having failed to scale globally, uh, which I attempted to do, and... I don't think our listeners should, who are building businesses, who are younger and dynamic and they're looking to scale an international business. It is incredibly, incredibly difficult. But the thing I found challenging wasn't so much the managing on leadership of people. I've done that all my life. But when you start operating in someone else's country with someone else's rules, regulations, all the bureaucracy that happens, when you do that a country after country after country, the amount of back-end bureaucracy and stress on your organisation that has to be dealt with, which is away from the front end of looking after the guests and the guides, the the great bit that everybody enjoys, it was just that chaos of the back-end, making sure everything's legal for every single destination that you're in. Bloody hard. That, to me, was the the killer as I was scaling, scaling up the business and the amount of resource, both capital, human, that that would suck out of the business and suck out the enjoyment of the business because you're constantly dealing with these with these challenges, uh, which I'm just I'm not saying for operators not to scale the business global because it's it's a great ambition, it's a great learning 
Germany to do. But it is incredibly difficult. And I think that's demonstrated by we haven't got many global scaled operators. We, we just have, and many of the ones who are, they've gone to a, a very digital model where they're just contracting guys on, on the ground and focusing on the brand, retailing as one brand with, with contracted guys on the ground. So, I mean, Intrepid has managed it. G Adventures has managed it. There's a few that have, have done it. But even today, with all the advances in technology, it is still an incredibly challenging business to do. And it's worth addressing the fact that, yes, Urban Adventures got out to 165 cities around the world, but it also crumbled. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it had a uh, uh, unsustainable business model um, sitting behind it um, that wasn't overly obvious until we got to that level of scale just how unsustainable that business model was. So, um, uh, you know, so even, even when you get, get there, it's achieving that volume, maintaining it, and yeah, you know, and that's where the hat tip really goes to, you know, your explores and um, uh, and your intrepids and your G adventures that are now 30, 40, 50 year old companies. Yeah. Um, that that is some awesome endurance to you know to overcome uh, all the issues that you just talked about and still. Um, not only maintain their position, but grow their market share and, and continue to grow um, uh, within their own industry. Incredible, like it is, and kind of having been in that maelstrom um, and trying to get there within the day tour industry, um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't the going up um, that was particularly hard because there were a lot of willing participants, and you know we we figured out the piece around you know, local laws and local um, jurisdictions and hiring by creating businesses that were owned locally. Um, but in the end, that was part of the business model failure. So, you know, um, um, the, the business would still exist had um, had there been a di different business model sitting behind it and had Intrepid owned all those entities. Um, but as it didn't, with so many fingers in a pie, which we all know is quite a small pie, um, there wasn't a way to, to make it work financially for all parties in the end. You know, that business is now down to, I'm not sure, 35, 40 destinations, and they're all owned in-house by Intrepid um, because Intrepid has set up its systems across the world where it has uh, legal entities in all those countries where it now operates the Urban Adventures as well. So, you know, it, it figured out that difficult bit that you spoke to um, for some destinations, but 45 is a long way off 160. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And kind of leading on from that, uh, the entrepreneur community is majority day operators, but we do have a big percentage of multi-day operators as well. My own background is a combination of day operating and multi-day. Uh, I totally get why we have more startups, entrepreneurs going into day tours. Now, I'm going to I'm going to say is obviously biased by my background. I'm a big fan of multi-day versus day tours for a, a whole host of reasons. Some of it we've already discussed. You're dealing with less customers, but you're making higher margins. Uh, you're also going deeper on the experience. Uh, but there's still very valid day tour models as as well. Uh, and I love my, my time as a day tour operator and all the people we got to meet and introduce them to adventure. So just your thoughts on day tour, not day tours versus multi-day, but where day tours fit going forward, where multi-day fits going forward. I had a, a model that I loved where it was a combination of them both uh, for a whole host of reasons. Acquiring a customer is expensive. 
um, keeping that customer is something that tour operators do not do well on the whole. But if you have day tours and multi-day tours, suddenly you have a customer journey within your own organization that can lead that customer to being a return customer, which becomes highly profitable on your cost of acquisition. For sure. Well, I mean, um, uh, you pretty much nailed the strategy behind Urban Adventures uh, in, that, in that comment. That was the strategy. Um, you know, uh, it was a, a part of um, the market that Intrepid didn't address. Um, we could see it every day. So as, a, as a on the ground running multi-day tours, um, our customers would arrive two, three days before the start of the first tour. And they, guess what they do? They'd go and do day experiences. Um, and Intrepid didn't have any say in who they were going with, what they were doing, and also wasn't making any uh, any money out of it. Um, so that was kind of part of it. Um, and also just the, the the size of the market you know, is obviously much much larger in, in the day tour side. So they, they were kind of the two pieces um, that brought together the, the birth of Urban Adventures. Um, combined with your other very insightful comment was um, you can create this customer journey um, within your entire business, um, which was a bit we uh, we failed at. And, and ultimately the reason for uh, the demise of Urban Adventures was um, that that didn't bear out at scale. Um, uh, that the customers who did the day journeys with Urban Adventures ultimately did not move um, in big enough numbers into the urban, uh, into the intrepid multi-day business. And so, you know, the, if you're looking for a, a single trigger point on, on, on what might have happened at Urban Adventures, that, that's exactly it. Um, in terms of future opportunities, um, I'm actually kind of in the midst of researching, um, you know, about around a, a reasonably I don't know if it's a new phenomenon or it's just new to me or or, um, or what the case may be, but there, you know, there are large groups of people, communities, if you wish, that have formed um, almost in an organic manner, like within Facebook, etc. Private groups um, that have numbers in the hundreds of thousands um, that are all based around people wanting to go travelling, looking for travel companions, um, and all that's multi-day. And the yeah. owners, owners of those Facebook groups are like, there's an opportunity here, but I don't quite know how to grasp it. Um, and it's not one. It's like I've identified maybe a dozen of these different groups that have huge numbers in them. So like the appetite for multi-day is massive. Um, the demand is there. Some people have captured that demand and don't know how to connect with supply. Um, they don't know how to build their own supply. Um, uh, and I think it's a really interesting opportunity for, um, for for lots of operators out there to also potentially diversify their market. Obviously, going down that path, you need to open up new marketing channels, new approaches, etc. So it does hold that that level of risk. Um, but as you said, um, is, uh, is has really great margins inside it um, if you get it right. Um, and uh, yeah, there are some interesting new businesses um, that are opening up in the in the uh, multi-day area that are doing things different to the ways that other people have, you know, the incumbents that have done it for the last 30, 40, 50 years. So a couple that you might want to go take a look at. Um, we Rode in Italy um, yeah. essentially started as one of those Facebook groups with you know, young Italians that wanted to go travelling. Um, they have figured it out. Uh, they have built 
proper scalable um, operations that are running, you know, um, uh, multiples of, of uh, multi-day trips, you know, every week um, and doing a pretty good job of it. And, you know, they're doing things differently to the way um, that the, the older companies have done. And when I you know, look at some of the stuff they're doing, I think, well, we would never have done that at Intrepid, but is that because we are risk averse or have they seized an opportunity that, that the newer market requires? Um, uh, yeah, so that's probably a really good one to go um, to go have a look at. Um, and then in the UK, there's Travamigo, which are doing something similar, but in a, in a really digital environment of getting people, connecting them, um, you know, uh, before travel um, and then sending them out as a, as a group um, with a very loose itinerary, essentially just your transport and your, your accommodation and then what you do when you're out there is totally up to you. And if you want to sleep in and not go and see whatever it is to see that day, well, it's your holiday. Good luck. You know, so there's lots of different models out there to have a look at um, that could be of interest to those that are looking at other ways that they might be able to utilise some of their already innate skills um, in another way. Yeah, I think a lot of the tourpreneurs who are running day tours, maybe experienced or not experienced or just started, they're a bit intimidated by multi-day moving from day tours into multi-day. The way I always sort of ask people, advise people to do it is, don't just dump, jump into running two-week trips or three-week trips internationally and overseas if you're a day tour operator. Look at your day tours and can you change that day tour from a one-day experience, half-day experience into a two-day experience, into a three-day experience. But just that slight change of experience and product gives you a, a great learning journey, but it also opens up a huge wide range of opportunities in your economic model because you're suddenly guiding the client pre-booking on a lot more than your experience. They're now discussing your transport, you're now discussing food, you're now discussing accommodation. All of that is an economic opportunity for the for the day tour operator if they go from one day to two days to three days. Uh, and it can be highly profitable just doing that as well as getting the deeper relationship with with the with the guest. I think there is a, a mindset of people think multi-day, we're doing 10 day trips or two week trip. Whereas multi-day can be done very, very successfully in short. And it, and it fits with the trend of people and sometimes having money but being time short, that they're looking for two days, three day blast experiences and maybe only one or two big experiences a year of 10 days. Uh, so that, that is one way for, for a community of operators to experiment is just go from one day to two days initially. May not be for you, but from my experience, I think once you get into multi-day, you'll go down the rabbit hole because it is a more rewarding uh, environment, in my opinion, uh, both from a financial perspective and from an interaction with a guest perspective, because you are... Totally in building that relationship with the customer um, yeah. and for your client as well, you know, to, to build a, a deeper relationship with your customer, which in their extension of your business and your brand also. Um, I couldn't agree anymore, Pete. It's, um, um, there's, there's definite opportunities in having deeper conversations than just book now. Um, and in the day industry, we really want to drive people to book now with the littlest amount of conversation as possible because the resources really aren't there to do any more than that. Um, but you are losing something in that. Um, you know, okay, you got that 40, 50 bucks. Um, but you know what you can get from um, uh, having a conversation with a customer about what they want to do 
um, can not only be financially lucrative, more lucrative, but can also, you know, uh, definitely um, be a, a great fill-up for your brand. And they're the customers that you build that really strong relationship with that are more likely to recommend their friends, et cetera, to come and do what they did with you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're both up getting to a certain age, which means we've been around this industry a very long time now. Old, yes. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah. Yep. So when you started, when I started, technology wasn't a big player in the industry. It was there, but it wasn't a big player. Now technology is a major, major player in, in the sector. Uh, from op Even small, tiny operators are now using what I class as world-class technology for a monthly fee or for free. And so technology isn't going to go away. It's going to come into this industry more and more. We're not leaders. We're followers. We follow other industries. Technology comes from other industries. What what do you see or how do you see technology impacting, particularly this small operator going forward? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, th th there's been a technological revolution already, so I guess that's kind of um, one part of it. Um, you know, if the difference between 2009 and 2022 is night and day. Um, uh, to you know, to have your bookings um, online um, distributed widely, um, with your customers being able to um, find you when they're sitting in their lounge room, sixteen thousand kilometres away, and make a decision to travel with you, um, was something that was kind of rare and and, um, uh, and not easily obtained. Um, you know, and two thousand nine is not a long time ago. So we've already gone through kind of a massive quantum shift uh, in the way the uh, the industry works, and and I think mainly for the benefit um, of the of the industry as well. Um, but you know, of course, there's been a cost associated with that, um, and you know, I guess the idea was that the added volume would cover the cost um, of of having um, the ability to to market. You know, um, to basically anybody anywhere, um, and have them come on your trip. Um, so, you know, I think you know, the, the the trend is almost anti that at the moment. It's like, yeah. um, you know, I, I want to get as many direct bookings as I possibly can, and therefore it's all about um, myself, my brand, and my own presence online. And um, you know, I think you know, obviously done the day tour side of things recently moving into hospitality running a restaurant um you know it's for both most small business operators it's just it's done fairly poorly um and you know that's not a criticism necessarily of of you know any um particular person it's just that it's quite a complex thing it takes a lot of time um and you know uh, when you've got um, customers that need to be led right now or you've got you know, a batch of 30 falafels in the fryer, well, that's probably more important than, um, than you know, checking on the SEO status of your, of your, um, you know, your, your nascent website or looking through your, you know, your Google listing or whatever. But these things are important, you know, um, and, and they're only going to become more important. You know, we see Google moving into the industry uh, as they have other parts of travel. Um, they, you know, they, they want to take a clip of, of pretty much all of it. Um, they'll give you give everyone a lick, you know, for free for a year or two, and then there'll be a cost associated with it. And kind of that's that's how um, how it goes. Um, and again, if I kind of go back to you know one of the big learnings from um, Urban Adventures, you know, the algorithm shift between 2018 and 2019 in uh, a TripAdvisor. 
um, was close, if not the knockout blow for um, for the urban adventures business. And as I, I was talking earlier, that it took us a long time to realise that our business model wasn't sustainable. And that was the moment that we realised it when you know um, we built a relationship with um, Viator um, and a really great relationship, um, and followed all the rules and ticked all the all the boxes and, and, and cross T's at, at the quickest speed that we possibly could when asked to do so. Um, and all that was very lucrative. You know, we, uh, we got a mass of business um, from that company and we sent a mass of money to them the other way. But uh, new management came in, bought by a different company, acquired different strategy, um, and literally overnight um, that business stopped. You know, and so that's 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 the issue with any kind of putting your eggs in a certain technological uh, basket. Um, you really do need to have it, you know, kind of quite widely spread and um, and understand that you know, if you do put them all in one basket, understand that someday that might come and, and knock you over. Yeah, from again, using my my own background and history, the, the advice I'd give to operators today because of the change in the industry, because of the demands of the technology side from basically of knowledge and ability to do something that most tourpreneurs are not really interested in doing because they're people, people, and they want to be guiding, they want to be fronting up, they want to be designing experiences. So all of this technological blabble that goes into the background that is super important. The only way I can see tour operators, small tour operators being able to deal with this going forward is something I didn't do but if I was starting again, I would 100% do, is you've got to find the days of being a sole entrepreneur running it all, it's just too much. It is really mm. too much. You're not going to get through it all and you're just going to have a stressful life. So you're going to have to find a partner and you're going to have to have a balance between a partner who's focused on business and focused on technology and a partner who's focused on operations and the customer experience. If I was starting again, there is no way I would be able to take on all of this stuff that's happening as a new person coming into the industry. It would just it would just be too much. I just can't see how small operators can scale. And not all operators want to scale up to be big businesses, but just to scale to being again, good, solid, resilient, profitable businesses, you've got to have to split the responsibilities in the business because it's, yeah. just, it's too encompassing. Could, couldn't agree. And... Um... Uh, I don't hold out much hope that that's going to happen, Pete, but um, no, because just, you know, the, the people that I know in this industry and how they've got into it, most have fallen into it. Um, a lot of, you know, no one I know has really kind of sorted out in, in a really active way. Um, they've had an interest or a passion um, and um, they've had a, you know, had a past life, a past career that they've done something in that they've become disillusioned with and they're actually looking for a lifestyle shift to indulge daily in what their passion is um and i think that works well for a while and then it becomes a business and then it becomes an opportunity and it becomes well maybe i could be bigger and maybe i could be better um and then now i've got actually now i just managed 20 people um which is probably what i did in my last job which made me disillusioned and got out in the first place um, um you know, it's kind of a, a well-worn, a well-worn path. I think, um, I think you know, going right back even a further step, and you know, writing down what you want from your um, tour business 
before you even start and putting that in an envelope somewhere in a, in a drawer and on the days that are a bit shitty, go and open that up and have a look at it and see how well you are living the life that you wanted to leave, uh, wanted to live and, and maybe adjusting what you're doing to get back to, you know, to what you actually really wanted because I think, you know, you can get, you can get waylaid by the opportunity or you can get waylaid by looking at what your competitors doing and how much they're growing or whatever. But, you know, I think, you know, by and large, the majority of people I've known who are, you know, still you know, the, the best people that I've ever worked with, the, the most fun I've ever had um, and, you know, some of the, the best people on the planet have done it at the beginning because it was going to serve the life they wanted to live. Um and you know that's you know it's a job, so it's not going to do that every single day. But um, ultimately, it should do that more days than it doesn't. And when it's not, then I think that's the time to kind of stop and take take note. And one way to do that is to bring in a business partner that will allow you to focus back on the enjoyable parts of the business that you love. Hundred um, percent believe that. And you know people will look at that and go, "But that's a cost." Now, what am I down to? Fifty percent of what I was that was hundred percent, but. Yeah, 100% of like a uh, uh, thing that's driving you crazy and, and that you don't really want to get to bed to versus 50% of something you really love. To me, it's no brainer which one I'd choose. So, you recently made a change, Tony, in the last few weeks, I think. So, air guides, I have no idea. Storytelling, what is air guides? Tell us about your new venture. Yeah, for sure. So, first, it's not my venture, it's, uh, it's, uh, I've come, uh, um, Combine myself with a, a great couple, um, Bibi and Paul, um, uh, and yeah, this is this is their passion. But their passion truly resonated with me when we talked about it. Um, so their uh, their I guess um, main focus is on the creator side. That's where their idea came from. Um, they believe that um, tourism and particularly sustainable tourism um, is best experienced. Um, through a storyteller, um, through somebody who has an affinity with a destination um, and has you know, an ability or a skill or something to, um, to learn um, from for, for the customers. Um, and they also have a, a really strong, passionate belief that um, these types of storytellers are professionals and should be paid like professionals. Um, and so their kind of guiding North Star is to help um, people that, you know, have stories, have abilities, have an audience um, and want to monetize that in tourism, um, the air guides can help them um, with all the bits that are hard about tourism to make their dreams come true and to earn a, uh, a proper um, professional wage from doing that just through their tourism uh, business. So, um, yeah, that bit really resonated with me. Um, and then it's kind of cast me into this other side of the, the tourism world that I, you know, of course, I knew it existed, but I've never really played around in it much. And that's the, you know, the destination marketing um, side of things. Um, and so, you know, the job of a, a destination you know, or a good DMO is to uh, enable the storytellers of their region to tell those stories in an authentic way. Um, so that, um, you know, the, the wider audience will be attracted to come and visit that destination. And so um, in the new gig, basically, we're, we're matching up um, amazing world-class storytellers um, that have their own audiences that are willing to travel with them. Um, and we are doing the heavy lifting on the product creation, so product development, 
Um, it turns into both uh, tours, guided tours that you travel along with the storyteller and also self-guided tours that are narrated by the st storyteller and uh, working with destinations to make those trips a reality uh, in the destinations that want to have them. So um, to me, it's like, you know, and I think, you know, for Vivian and Paul, um, they probably don't want to be the biggest um, travel company in the world. I think they're quite happy to be, um, you know, the most impactful um, uh, storytelling and sustainability um, travel company in the world. That would be a, a really good ambition. And, and that's the kind of um, thing that really got me into it. So it's an exciting journey, um, exploring a whole different side of, um, of the industry to what I have done before, but still utilising the skills that I've built over you know the 17 years and particularly the ability to um, to build product and and strategize around how that product should be built and, and executed and and marketed alongside partners i mean this is the first i've heard this sorry but the, we we have actually seen over the last couple of months in Turpreneur, we've had a lot of what i call content creators become members they're not travel professionals these are creators they have youtube channels and they have stuff they're interested in travel that they're, they're creating they have a following but the the conversations within the facebook group are all about they've tried to do a tour and it's not worked or it's been a disaster or how do we sub how do we contract with an operator so they do all the stuff we don't know about so there is definitely something happening in that space uh, because it's we're having conversations about it uh, i have no idea of the scale of it i have no idea how much of it i get a feeling it's much bigger than i than i realize uh, and I've got a feeling that more content creators, if the hard lifting could be done for them, would would be would be interested because, as we all know, learning to be a tour operator is challenging and a long journey. And the vast majority of great content creators are probably not wanting to do all of that because that's not their passion. So there's definitely sure. got to be a there, there's definitely got to be a connection there somewhere where systems can be designed to to bring in this new new breed and they tend to I was sure. say young they do tend to be young not all we have a few that are old but they do tend to be young enthusiastic and it's an opportunity for both sides because it's bringing in new experiences new products to the market but it's also giving existing operators a new channel to be able to work with these with these young enthusiastic people who are creating new content totally yeah yeah and uh, in, uh, in terms of process you know we would talk to a uh, a storyteller about um you know what destination they actually have an affinity with it's not just where you want to go um because if you're bringing people along with you what is the story you know that the trip has to have a story that sits behind it that makes sense to the the traveler as well so for example um if i were to be a storyteller then my story would be in egypt because i lived there for five years i have friends there um that i, I have made uh, i know places um, um to go that you know certainly not on the on the tourist trail and i can show people an egypt um that that nobody else could show them uh, and and give them a feeling um uh, of uh you know being integrated in with the local community that you just couldn't get on any other tour so you know, that would be my story but um at the moment we're kind of working with um very good uh photographers so you like canon brand uh canon um uh, brand ambassadors um gopro um, brand ambassadors um world-class chefs um it seems every world-class chef would like to get involved in travel in some way so um uh and that's nice because they're, they're certainly passionate they've got skills that they can share 
um, along the way, along with stories um, that are beneficial for the overall customer experience. And, and kind of that's kind of the stuff that we're really interested in doing. So you know, today I built a trip with a, a photographer, uh, Mark Fitz. Um, he's a, a Canon um, brand ambassador of certain years. He's at the top of it. Um, and uh, we're going to do a trip out to a, a beautiful place called Lady Elliot Island where um, there's a certain time of the year where uh, baby turtles hatch and um, he's been out there and photographed them and that's why he's famous, I guess. Um, and he's going to teach other people how to take those photos at the exact right moment in the right, exact right place and edit them so that they're beautifully so that those customers go home and go, look what I did. I've, I've learned and really grown myself in the skill that I love doing and had an amazing time out there doing it. So, um, and I guess the other, I guess the other point that comes along with it is that we don't um, leave the logistics to our storytellers. So every trip that we, we have has a uh, air guides um, ex expedition leader along. Um, and you know, the way we explain to our customers is, you know, uh, storyteller, fun stuff. Anything that's crappy, come to me. Uh, yeah. yeah the leader, so, um, run out of toilet paper. Don't go and ask the storyteller about it. We'll uh, we'll fix it up over on this side. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a very exciting business, and uh, I'm interested in, um, in 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 learning myself always. And, and even the first three weeks have been an incredible learning journey, particularly on the the destination uh, marketing organisation side of things. It's a it's a fascinating space. Okay. Thanks very much, Tony, for your time and all your years of wisdom that you've been given to the tourpreneur community here. I hope to see you in person again sometime soon. We haven't seen each other for a while, but I hope to grab a beer with you sometime soon. Totally, yeah. I'll be over for WTM, I think. So uh, I'll okay. definitely be up on the island. I hope I, uh, hope I see you around there. Yeah, if you're at WTM, I'll, I'll see you down there. Perfect. Okay. All right. Look forward to catching up again soon, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks very much, Tony. Cheers.